Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, the gift that it is to us, the chance to, to know truth, and not just to hope it's true, but to truly know that you are a God of truth, that you want to speak to us. We pray that you would give us open hearts now to hear what you would say. Fill us up. We want to be conformed to the person of Jesus Christ. We want to be like Jesus. So we ask that you do these things tonight for your glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we find ourselves tonight in the book of Ephesians. And we're working our way through the letters to the church that are found in the New Testament. So we started in the book of Romans. We're going to work our way all the way through, hopefully by the end of the year, to the book of, the, of Jude. Uh, and you're probably thinking Revelation is in there too. It is, but we didn't, I didn't factor it in when I calculate how many chapters I could do a week. And so, hey, we'll see what happens with Revelation. I, I, I don't know. But um, anyway, so tonight we are in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is uh, it's an incredible book and it's an incredible church. It's a church that was started in the city of Ephesus. Paul started it on his... Uh, second missionary journey. And he got to the city of Ephesus, and there were people there who believed but were lacking something. He said, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you got saved? And they said, we don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit. He said, oh, okay. Um, so exactly what, what were you baptized, like you're baptized, what were you baptized into? And they said, well, we were baptized into, into John's baptism. We know the Messiah is coming, and we believe it. And he says, well, that's great. Let me explain to you the Messiah has now come, and that you can have uh, the same power of God that rose Jesus from the dead living inside your heart. And so we prayed for them, and they received the Holy Spirit. They spoke with the gift of tongues. And the gospel went out in the city of Ephesus. Paul spent uh, close to two and a half years there teaching the people. He was teaching them for hours a day, taking them through the Word of God, explaining to them who Jesus Christ was, how it impacts their life. And it was so effective. The church was so impactful in the city that the uh, basically the idol makers union started a riot because they said if, if any more people get saved we're going to lose all of the money that we make selling uh, souvenirs because the city of Ephesus had the temple of Diana which was uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world it was a massive attraction that people came from all over to see and the silversmiths in the city just like any tourist destination today you can always buy a little something to take home with you and so the silversmiths would make these little silver miniatures that people could buy. And people were getting saved in the city of Ephesus. And so they weren't buying the miniatures anymore because we don't need a false idol in our house. We've got Jesus Christ. We've got the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And so wound up, there was a huge riot in the city of Ephesus. Paul had to leave. And then on his way back to Jerusalem, before he's going to be uh, taken prisoner, he'll spend several years in prison. That's when he's going to write this letter. Um, but he stops. He doesn't stop in Ephesus, but he's swinging by on his way home and he, he sends a message to the elders of the Ephesian church. He says, I want to meet you if it's possible. I want to, basically, I'm, I'm swinging by. I do not have time to stop and see the whole church and talk to everybody and hang out with everybody. But I want to get together with the elders and the leaders. And so they meet Paul on the shore. And he says, okay, guys, listen. I'm not going to see you again. This is it. This is farewell. And, and there's a wait in, in Paul. It's, a, it's about a half chapter of Paul talking to them. And there's a couple things that are really important. He tells them, you need to be on guard because there are going to be false teachers coming. You need to be aware of that reality. But he tells them another thing, and I, the reason I get here is because it's important. Um, it's not a complete rabbit trail. Uh, he says, okay, listen, basically, I'm never going to see you again. The Holy Spirit has made it clear to me that I'm going to be, something's going to happen to me in Jerusalem, and I know that bonds and imprisonment await me. I don't think I'm ever going to see you guys again. So this is farewell. This is hold fast. 
And this is also remember, basically, if you've got a grievance against me, tell me right now and I'll make it right. This is your chance. But he says, you also remember that I did not shun to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He says, if you're going to complain about anything I did while I was a pastor of the church, you need to understand that one thing I did is I declared to you the entire counsel of God. And Paul's speech there is pivotal for us as a church because we believe as a church that that's what a pastor ought to be able to say to the people that he's been given the responsibility to teach. You ought to be able to say, I didn't shun, I didn't hide from teaching you any part of the word of God. I did not shun to declare to you the whole counsel of God. The only way you can declare the whole counsel of God is if you go through the whole counsel of God. That's why as a church we're so committed to going through the word. All right, and so Paul's interaction with the church at Ephesians is a huge part of why this church is structured the way it is. All right, Ephesians also, just incidentally, played a huge role in my dad's testimony. It was one of the books of the Bible that got him serious about the Lord. So if anybody in the room has been blessed by Scott Murphy's life, you need to understand that it's in part due to the book of Ephesians because it's such a powerful book. And so this is a book that is just immensely rich, and it's perfectly situated in the Bible. It comes right after Galatians. And if you remember, the epistles to the church are not sorted chronologically. They're sorted in order of length. Super efficient, right? Just like, boom. So you've got the letters to the churches. Okay, Romans is the longest. First and second. Then the letters to the Corinthians are the longest. First and second. Then we're just going to go book by book. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. First and second Thessalonians. Then we get to the personal letters to individuals. They're sorted by length. You know, first and second Timothy, then Titus, and then Philemon. And then we have the book of Hebrews, which sort of stands on its own. Uh, then we, well, then we, I guess we have the rest of the books of the New Testament that are written, sorted by length. So by the other authors, Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, First and Second Third John, and then Revelation stands alone as the prophetic end of the world. So we're sorted by length, okay? But it's incredibly important, I think, that Ephesians comes right after Galatians. Because Galatians is all about grace. But it's about the responsibility to walk in grace. Galatians is all about, okay, you need to understand, here's how significant grace is in the life of the believer. Here's why it's so important to understand that you can't add anything to your salvation. Here's why it's so critical that you don't let false teachers into the church who are going to tell you, hey, you need to believe in Jesus Christ and do this. And keep the Old Testament law, and go to synagogue, and be circumcised if you're a male, and do it. And Paul says, no, 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 you have got to understand it is by the grace of God and nothing else that you are saved. And Galatians is all about the responsibility to walk in grace. Ephesians is all about the thrill of walking in grace. Galatians says this is incredibly important. And Ephesians says, now that you understand how important it is, let's explain how fun it is, how exciting it is to get to walk in grace. And so Ephesians is really going to be a thrilling book. It's, it's a book about, hey, here's because here's what God has done, here's what we get to do. Here's how we get to respond. Here's the freedoms we get to have. Here's the liberty we get to walk in. Here's the joy we get to experience. And so what Paul's going to do, the book is six chapters long. The chapters were added later so that people in church could find their place easier, right? It's easier for me to say, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, than say, okay, well, it's easier for me to say, turn to chapter... Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, than it is for me to say, okay, the spot when Paul, you know, he's, he's going down that train of thought, and we're going we're gonna to pick it up right there. So the chapters and verses are added later, but the book divides very neatly into two halves. 
chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 1 through 3 are going to be all about here's what God has done. Here's all just a rough, you know, let's talk about the grace of God. Let's talk about the peace of God. Let's talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about who God is, what he's done in the life of the believer. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are, here's what we ought to be doing as a response to that. And it's in that order critically. It's not, hey, here's what you need to do in order to get all these good things that God wants to give you. It's, hey, here's all these good things that God has already given you. So here's an appropriate way to live a life that says thank you. Right? Here's the response, not the cause of God's goodness. So here we go. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Almost all of Paul's letters start out basically the same. He reminds us he's an apostle by the will of God. Paul's not an apostle because he wanted to be or because he made himself one or because he was smart enough. He was an apostle because God chose him. And to the saints in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, saints is any person who's been saved by the grace of God. It's not a special person. If you're a believer, you're a saint. And he tells us the greeting that we see over and over. He says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And every time we get to here, we stop and say it. And you can say, wow, it's a little repetitive. Wow, it never gets old. The grace of God always comes before the peace of God. If you lack peace in your life, you don't need a pill. You don't need therapy. You don't need meditation. You need grace. You need to experience and understand grace. If you are lacking in peace, take it back to grace. Grace produces peace. When you understand what God has done, then all of a sudden, no problem that you're facing is bigger than that. No trial you're going to go through is bigger than the cross. And if the power of God could raise Jesus Christ from the dead and then give you the promise that, as this, that that was the picture and now that same power is dwelling inside of your life, you're going to be okay. You can have peace. You do not have to... You can, you can rest in that, but only if you understand grace. So grace to you and peace. And then verse 3... Different translations break it down different ways. But some people would say that verse 3 through verse 14 is one sentence. Okay, so we're going to read it all. Uh, the New King James Version, I think, breaks it into five or six sentences. But it's this massive long chunk of thought that Paul is going to hit us with. And I think it probably works well to just read it all as one chunk, and then we'll go back and break it down a little bit. <clears throat> so verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. 
In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Okay. So Paul says, hey, praise the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has... And then he spends 10 verses telling us what exactly God has done. Who has done this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And if you're reading Ephesians, okay, pay attention to all the descriptors of God. In him, for him, by him, through him, because of him, to him, for him, through him, in him. It's just over and over and over again. The emphasis throughout this book is here's what God has done. Right? He chose us. He predestined us. Why? According to his will, for to the glory of his grace. He made us accepted. In him we have redemption. Through what? Through his blood. According to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound. He's made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, so that he might gather together all things in Christ. In him, in him, we've obtained an inheritance. We've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, to the praise of his glory. Who's, uh, who's doing the work here? The Lord is doing the work. Do you understand this? And some people will break it down and say, well, the, kind of the first chunk is all about what the Father does, the second chunk is what the Son does, the third chunk is what the Spirit does. That's not necessarily wrong. But the emphasis here is just overall, what? God has done the work. God is, God is, God is driving this ship, right? Who's the hero of this story? Jesus Christ. Understand something, especially in American context. Uh, we all love to tell ourselves that we're the hero of the story. We love the hero narrative, okay? We, we understand it. We understand, you know, there's the person on the quest. They're going to find the quest. They're either going to find the treasure or get the girl or get their revenge, whatever it is. By the end of an hour and 45 to two and a half hours, uh, you know, that we're, we're going to accomplish a specific goal and we're going to identify with somebody in the movie or somebody in the book. And who is it? It's the hero. Why? Because deep down, we're the hero in our story. We like to believe that we're the ones, we're telling the story, we're, we're the hero. Who's, who is... Who is Nate Murphy's life about? Let's be frank. Nate Murphy, right? You guys are all, what? Secondary characters. That's how we think of it on a day-to-day -day basis. And good salespeople, good marketing people, they know how to play into this. They'll position themselves like, hey, you're the hero. Hey, since the customer is always right, right? They understand this idea of if we can make somebody believe that they're the hero, they'll buy my product to make them an awesomer hero. They'll, they'll listen to me to make themselves a smarter hero. They'll do whatever, but understand something. That's not how Christianity works. You and me are not the hero. This is not our story. Whose is it? It's Christ. Jesus Christ is the hero. He's the central figure of all humanity, and he needs to be the central figure of our life. Why? Because of everything we just read about that he's done. He has done all these things. Now, there's a couple things which, while we're here, we need to pay attention to. It says that he chose us before the foundation of the world. It says a little later on that he predestined us to adoption. It means he 
we were destined to be adopted before we were born. And some people read these and they get really uncomfortable. Because, well, wait a second. Does that mean I had an actual free will? Does that mean that I had the ability to choose God? Or is God kind of making me love him, maybe against my will, and I just don't know it in this kind of weird idea? Um, you know, maybe, uh, is this cut into God's goodness if I don't have the ability to really choose? Let me explain something. This is, Dad always loves to talk about, there's a spectrum of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And what, what you do when the scriptures give us a paradox of saying that is two truths that the Lord tells us these are both true, what we need to not do is try to dilute them to make ourselves more comfortable. We embrace them both as fully as possible. All right? And you embrace both. You don't run towards one side. That gives you lopsided theology. You embrace both. So is God sovereign? Yes. How sovereign? So incredibly sovereign that you don't have the capability to understand how in control he is and how sovereign he is. Are you responsible for your actions? Yes. How responsible? So responsible. Scripture says we're going to give an account for every thoughtless word, every careless word we say. God will hold you responsible for every slip of the tongue if you're choosing to not uh, receive his forgiveness. So how responsible are you? Way. How sovereign is God? Way. And sometimes people want to get into a doctrine, a little statement, and say, well, what do you believe about, you know, do you believe in predestination? Do you, believe, you know what I believe? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and he predestined us to adoption. And that doesn't take away our free will, but this is a verse that describes God's sovereignty. God, in his wisdom, in his power, in his godness has the ability to understand certain things that we don't. God sees things, God's, you know, we see a straight line of time, beginning, middle, end. God sees it all at once. He sees the end from the beginning. And so we come to passages like this, we can say, I don't really understand how that works. If God predestined me to be adopted, then does that mean that I actually had the choice? And what's the answer? Yes, it does. Because the scriptures can tell us that God predestined us to adoption. They can also tell us that you have the choice. And if you accept God, it's because you made the choice, and it's also because he chose you. So which one comes first? It doesn't matter. The point is God says it, and therefore we have the, we have the need to believe it. Now, just another quick thing, because we're in Ephesians. Ephesians is a sovereignty book. Ephesians is all about here's what God has done. And if you get stuck in Ephesians, if you're not declaring the whole counsel of God... You're going to get into some really, really, really whacked out theology. Because what you'll start to say is, well, okay, wait. If God could predestine people to heaven, then maybe God could predestine people to hell. So maybe there's some people who just aren't going to, save, aren't going to be saved, weren't ever going to be saved, didn't even have a chance, and really it's just too bad, so sad for them. Scripture never says that. Anywhere. Anytime the Scripture talks about predestination, it talks about, or choosing, it talks about the choosing toward adoption. It does not talk about God choosing certain people to be condemned. It talks about God choosing people to be adopted. So don't, uh, and, and if you try and take that stance, then all of a sudden you have to start taking out verses in the scripture, like John three sixteen, It says, God so loved the world that he gave his son that whosoever, or in Revelation, when Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. The invitation to salvation is open to everybody. And so we read this and we need to not say, wow, 
So it says he predestined us to adoption. That must mean he also predestined other people to damnation. It doesn't say that. What do we do? We read the scripture and we believe the scripture because it has revealed itself to tell the truth, to be the truth-telling thing. So God chose us. And that's not, that shouldn't be a scary thought. That should be the most comforting thing you can comprehend. Because all of a sudden, you're not the hero of the story. So guess what? The success of this story does not ride on you. Right? Your ability to stay faithful now throughout a lifetime of serving the Lord is not based on your awesomeness or your brilliance or your willpower. It's based on, is God big enough to do the thing that he set out to do? And so understand, if God is that big, and I believe that he is, then all of a sudden, there's this thrill of, hey, I don't have to sweat it quite so bad. All of a sudden, there's this, all of a sudden, I'm just not, you know, once you're not the hero, you're not nearly as important as you thought you were in some ways. And sometimes realizing that you're not crazy important is about the most liberating thing that can happen. Like, oh, you mean the whole thing isn't riding on my shoulders? That might be, you know, be a little disappointing to know that you're not as awesome as you hoped, but gosh dang it. There's a lot less riding it. There's a lot less embarrassment riding if you screw something up, right? If you, if you blow something, if you do something stupid, hey, guess what? God's still pretty awesome, right? And so the goodness of God, who God is, what he's done, that's what the book of Ephesians is going to be telling us about. So he says, basically, God the Father saved us. Or God the Father chose us. Jesus Christ saved us. The Holy Spirit is now empowering us. He's been given to us as the seal of the promise, almost as the earnest money, if you will, on a, on a down payment, right? You give earnest money when you make an offer on a house or on a car to say, basically, I'm serious. I'm coming back. I want you to hold this for me. God the Father has given us the Holy Spirit as, in a sense, the down payment. Say, hey, I'm serious. I am coming back for you. I am coming back to finish the purchase that I made. And so, I'm going, I'm in dead earnest, and so I'm just giving the Holy Spirit in your life as the symbol of that. So, so far, who's doing all the work here? God. Who's, who's responsible? You know, so it ties in right with Galatians, right? Who's responsible for saving you? God. Thank you. He goes on in verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul says, guys, here's everything that God did, verses 3 through 14. And since, I, since the time that I heard that you guys are grasping this, since the time I've known you, since the time I've seen you guys growing in this truth and letting this impact your lives, 
I don't cease to give thanks for you. I am so thankful for you guys as a church. I am so blessed by your life. And so I want you to know that I'm giving thanks for you. I also want you to know that I'm praying for you. And we get a very sweet look into Paul's heart for these people. All right? He tells us what he's praying for them. And he tells us in a couple of different places in scriptures. He tells us, uh, there's a few more things later in Ephesians. Um, I think Colossians and 1 Thessalonians. He gives a couple references there to the churches of, hey, here's what I'm praying for you. And, and I would encourage you, write these down and pray them for people. Okay, if, if Paul, if the Apostle Paul said, I want to pray this for somebody, and I want to let them know that I'm praying this, then it's probably something that's worthwhile to pray, right? He says, I'm, I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I want you to know and understand God. Not know about him, I want you to know him. He's praying that the eyes of their understanding or the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. God, would you open their eyes to know you more? He's praying that that they would know the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance, and the exceeding greatness of his power. And then he goes on and he gets carried away. He starts talking about what exactly the power is, the power that raised Christ from the dead. So he says, guys, I'm praying these for you. I'm praying that you know these things in your life, not just know about them, not just hope them. You know them. All right? If you want to pray something for somebody, pray this for them. Right? I have a list in my Bible. Uh, that I've written down of all the spots I can find where Paul prays for people. Not because I'm spiritual, but because I'm just dumb enough that if I don't write them down, I'll forget them. And I think, you know what? If you want to pray effectively for somebody, why not pray what Paul prayed? Right? God has seen fit to preserve this prayer for 2,000 years. Why not pray for somebody? God, you know, if somebody gives you a prayer request Sunday mornings, right? You find somebody you can pray for. And they say, hey, you know what? I've got a cold. Pray for their cold. Absolutely. God cares about their cold. But while you're at it, right? Hey, God, bless their cold. While you're at it, give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Open the eyes of their heart to understand you. Let them know the hope of your calling, the riches of the glory of your inheritance, and the greatness of your power. Don't you want somebody to pray that for you? So Paul is just saying, guys, here's what I'm praying for you. Why? Again, why? Because of who God is. Because of the greatness of who God is. Because of the depth and the fullness of what God has done. Because the church is growing in this. Paul says, I am thankful for you guys, and I am praying these things for you guys. Chapter 2. He keeps moving on. He says, and you. And I'm going to pause right there, because if you have a New King James Version, it's going to say, and you he made alive. But the he made alive is written in italics. And what that's, what that's telling us, when you're reading your Bible and you come to a word that's in italics... What that means is it's not there in the original Greek. But as they're translating it into English, the scholars are trying to make sure that the flow happens correctly so that you comprehend in English the original intent. Okay? And sometimes it's incredibly helpful. Sometimes it's a little distracting. And so I personally think this is a situation where it's a little better because the phrase he made alive is going to get repeated down in verse 5. And so Paul's going to get there. But I think it's better to read it without because he's making a point of emphasis. So I'm going to skip it and here we go. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, 
fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Here's everything that God did in verses 3 through 14. And here's what you did. You were dead, right? If you're, if you're like, well, hey, you know, am I the hero in this story? What, what part, did, you know, God did all these things he chose. He, you know, it's by him, for him, in him, through him, because of him, to him, all that. What exactly did I do in this story? You successfully proved that you were dead, right? You successfully confirmed. There was no doubt, in fact. You, you proved conclusively that you were a sinner who needed God's grace. That's the only thing you did. You sinned awfully enough to make sure that we knew that the Lord needed to save you. That, that's, all you that's all we get to do. All you, the only thing, what do you get to do in, the, in your story of making yourself awesome? Well, you're dead. And dead people aren't really awesome people in, the, in that sense, you know? It's like, well, you're just not, you know, admire the thought. Boy, he looks nice in that casket. But uh, there's just not a lot happening there, right? And so what were you? Before the Lord saved you, you were dead. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. So here's everything that God did. Here's what you did, which was nothing, right? God did all these things. You did nothing. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God is rich in mercy, and he has a great love for us. And so what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. The resurrection on Easter morning was not the last resurrection of someone from the dead. It was the first. And other people had risen from the dead before in the Old Testament, even Lazarus in the New Testament. But what happened to them all? They died. Jesus was the first one who rose from the dead and did not return to the dead. And God is doing the same thing in each one of our hearts. If you've been resurrected with Christ, God is making you alive. Because even when you're alive in a physical sense, but you are not saved by the Lord, but you're walking in your sins, you are dead. We don't fully understand death and life in a physical context, uh, or in a spiritual context because of our physical reality, okay? But if you are not a Christian, it doesn't matter how fit you are or how strong you are, you are dead. And God wants to make you alive. And if you are alive in Christ then a physical death does not kill you. It just moves you to a new building, right? It just finishes out the construction site and now you go to where the job is finished. Physical death does not kill the believer. It just transfers place of residence, all right? So God is rich in mercy. Why does he need to be rich in mercy? Because you were dead. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. None of us deserved it. We were dead, but he is rich in mercy and because of his great love, which he has for us. Do you realize that God delights in you? God enjoys you. God loves to be with you. He loves to be with you. Right? God is not 
abstaining from you. He's not holding back to, to, to make you crawl to him. Why? Because of his rich mercy and his great love. He wants to make you alive together with Christ. He wants to give you a vibrancy that you cannot experience on your own. So why, and, and is it because you deserved it? No. Because why? Verse 7. Then in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come in heaven, what's God going to do? He's going to show us the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. We're going to have an eternity to figure out just how kind God has been to us, just how much grace he has given to us. And it will take an eternity to unpack that. You'll never get bored figuring out how kind God has been to you. Because you'll never tap the end of it. It will always be something new to learn. You'll never run out of learning about the grace of God, even if you have eternity to spend doing it. And so God saved you, not because you deserved it, but so that he might be glorified in the demonstration of his grace. And it's an irony that happens because all of a sudden, what does that mean about you? Well, it means he saved you for nothing that you did. But he also delights in you. So to be human is this ironic blend where you're simultaneously, uh, you're not really bringing anything to the table. By earthly metrics, you're not worth anything. But in the eyes of God, you're worth dying for. Do you understand this? You're not worth anything because of the value that you bring. You are worth something because of the value that God assigns to you. He says, I delight in you, not because you have earned it, because you haven't. I delight in you because I seek to glorify myself and I'm going to do it by demonstrating my love toward you. That's the relationship we get to have with the Lord. And he goes on in verse 8. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So how have we been saved? By grace. We've been saved by grace, how? Through faith. In order, to believe, in order to be a Christian, you do have to believe. God did everything. You have to accept that fact and believe it. But lest you think, oh, hey, I'm still driving this ship. I can sort of hold back. No, no, understand. The faith itself to believe in what God has done is a gift from God. You are not capable on your own, in your own sinfulness, of expressing the faith that is required to accept Jesus Christ. God gives you that faith. And so, again, it's one of these, well, does it, is it my free will or is it God's choosing? It's both. But we're getting a place of emphasis here. Paul wants us to really make sure we understand, hey, you're saved by grace. You're saved by grace. You're not like cleaned up by grace. You're saved by grace. And it's through faith. It's through belief. It's not through acts. It's not through doing things. It's through believing and accepting. And even that believing is still the gift of God, right? It is still the gift of God. He goes on, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here we go. So you're, you're saved by grace through faith. And that's not of yourselves. That's not your own faith. That's a gift of God. That's a gift of faith for we are his workmanship. The word workmanship in Greek is poema. That's where we get the word poem. You are the poem of God, which is, which is an interesting level. It's, it's not, you know, you're not the two-by-four structure 
of God. Nothing wrong with two by fours. I like a good two by four. But you're the poem of God. God is creating a story of your life that's going to demonstrate beauty. There's going to be a rhythm and a rhyme to it. Okay? But understand a couple things about that. One, you've got to read the whole poem before it makes sense. And sometimes if you read one line of a poem, it doesn't make any sense. Right? And so if you look at your life sometimes and you're like, I don't get where this is going. It's because, you know, you got your first three lines and you haven't gotten the fourth one that rhymes yet. Right? And our church ought to understand this pretty well because we have a poetry night every year, which sounds super, you know, snooty until you get there. And I've had dumb poems stuck in my head all week long thinking about this. But, um, but sometimes you need to understand, hey, God is, God is telling a story through my life. God is going to glorify himself through my life. If it doesn't make sense, it's because there's another line coming and you may not see it yet. So understand that. Also understand we are his workmanship. You are not the workmanship of anyone else if you are in Christ. You're not the workmanship of your parents. You're not the workmanship of your ex-husband or your ex-boyfriend or your ex-spouse. You're not the workmanship of your children's emotional instability or, or, you know, the trauma that you may have experienced or the person who may have violated your, your, you know, your virginity or your decency as a child. You're none of those people's workmanship. None of them, none of those experiences, none of those people have to define you. Who defines you? Jesus Christ. You are his workmanship. You are not the workmanship of another. And the world wants to always tell you, hey, you know, you need to look kind of inward and backward, right? What happened to me when I was a child? What did somebody do to me in the past? What's, you know, how do I feel about the situation? Christianity calls us to look outward and upward. It says, hey, the glory of Jesus Christ is what I'm fixed on. And if I'm going to look back, it's only for this, it's only like checking your mirrors, right? I check my mirrors to make sure I'm not going to run into something so that I can position myself better to put the car in drive and go forward. I do back up sometimes in a car. I don't drive down the interstate backwards, right? If, I wanna, if I'm going to use reverse in a car, it's an important feature sometimes. It's an important feature to get me going forward. And so sometimes, yes, you do need to look back. You say, you know what, am I being bitter towards somebody? Is it something that I haven't let go? Is it something I need to repent of maybe? Okay, but don't, we don't get stuck there. We're looking further up and further in. We're going for it right? We are his workmanship. We are not the workmanship of another person. And we were created in Christ Jesus, he says, for good works. You were not created in Christ Jesus by good works. You're not created in Christ Jesus because of what you did. You're created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God is sovereign. God predestined you to adoption. God sees your life. He sees the whole thing played out and somehow you have free will and I don't fully understand how that works but the scripture says it so I believe it. But he says God has created you for good works which he prepared beforehand. God has set up your life. He want, there are good things that he wants to see you do. And you're not saved by them but he wants to be glorified in your life. And so there are situations, there are interactions, there are relationships that you will get to have that God knows about already. And he is preparing you to walk in them well. We're not saved so we can do whatever we want. We're saved so we can walk in the good works that God has already prepared for us. So that we can walk in the holiness that he has created us with the, the ability to walk in for his glory. Again, not by good works, for good works. Verse 11, Therefore, Remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision 
by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So he's talking to the Gentiles specifically. Uh, in Ephesus, the vast majority of the believers would have been Gentiles, if not all of them. He says, okay, understand, you were once separated from the promise of God because you weren't walking in the law of God. But guess what? Just like we've been talking about in Galatians for the last two weeks, the law of God has been fulfilled. So now you've been brought near. Now, your salvation is the exact same as the salvation of a Jewish person. There's no separation of, are you living up to the law? You've been brought near. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. He says, okay, he's kind of continuing the same thought. Hey, you were two different ideas, two different groups, two different trains of thought on how do we attain righteousness. You had the unrighteous person like Romans 1 talks about, person just walking in their sins. You have the self-righteous person, like Romans 2. The person who's, hey, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I'm definitely, may not be the best person in the world, but I'm certainly better than some people, right? And Paul says, no, you've been brought together. There's now one type of person in Christ, and that is the Christian. That's the person who God has saved, right? There's no longer the people who God saved and the people who worked their way to God. There never was, but there was an idea for a while, uh, kind of a misunderstanding of the law that, hey, you know, there's saved people, and then there's awesome saved people. Um, no, we're all one in Christ. But notice what he also says, for he himself is our peace. He doesn't say he himself gives us peace. He is our peace. We said if you want to understand peace, you've got to go back to grace. Where does grace come from? It comes from Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins, for my sins, rising from the dead. Jesus doesn't then give us peace and hand it off to us. Peace comes through experiencing grace. Experiencing grace comes through experiencing and knowing Jesus Christ. We are given this opportunity through all of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 to say, what has God done? What is he offering us? He's not offering us an intellectual relationship. He's not our college professor. He is not, uh, you know, he, he's not a a banker or an intellectual elite or this, these people who we have these ideas about who are just kind of hard to get to. He's someone who wants you to know him, right? He chooses to identify himself as a bridegroom and to identify us as a bride. Now, that's a pretty uh, intimate level of knowledge. That's an intimate level of connection. And God says, yeah, that's the metaphor I want to use. That's how much I want to know you. I want to know you. So, do you know the Lord? Do you know Jesus Christ? Or do you know about him? Are you, are you walking in relationship with him, in fellowship with him? Are you listening to the words that he's saying as he's speaking to you through his word? Or are we just trying to know about him to make you feel better about yourself? And understand that one will leave you frustrated, empty, always stressed, always ticked at people who aren't doing enough, 
And one will let you experience the reality that Jesus Christ is our peace. If you know Jesus, you will know true peace. And if you don't, you will not. Because grace and peace, the grace of Christ brings the peace of Christ. Verse 19, as we're wrapping up. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So he says, okay, he's, he's again carrying the idea that there's no longer this Jew-Gentile divide. We're no longer divided. Right? We, if you're a Christian, you do not have the right to divide Christianity into different groups of people. Right? No one has the right to say, well, I'm an American Christian. Or I'm a white Christian. I'm a black Christian. I'm a poor Christian. I'm a rich Christian. You never get to put anything in front of the word Christian. Because Christianity should be what defines us above and beyond everything else. Right? I'm a Christian who happens to be, in my case, a 26-year-old male. I'm not a 26-year-old Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to be 26. Right? I'm not a male Christian. I'm not an American Christian. I'm a Christian. And so... We are no longer strangers and foreigners. Our world is broken up into clan warfare, right? And sometimes we call it nicer things than that, but it's really all it is. It's clan warfare. It's tribalism. You're either in my group or you are not. There's two kinds of people in the world, winners and losers. If you're on their side, you're a loser because my team wins. Why? Because I'm the hero of the story, right? And he says, you're no longer that. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are all part of the same household. We are brothers and sisters. We are family. And we are stuck with each other. And he says, we have been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We're being built up. We, the church, the collective body of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, are being built up on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What's that? The word of God. We're being built up on the foundation of the word of God with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And Jesus Christ is central to everything in Christianity. The Word of God is what we're all going to be built upon. And we're all going to grow into it together. But he says, you also are being built together into a holy temple in the Lord for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So that means a couple things. That means that we as a church collectively, and not just this church collectively, but as the global church collectively, are being built into something that the Lord wants to dwell in. God wants to see the power of the Holy Spirit working through the church. Okay? And that means that he does not desire for us to break into tribes and factions. Now, sometimes there are principles of doctrine. If you want to call yourself a church and you're going to tell me that Jesus Christ is one of the ways to get to heaven, then no. We're not going to have the same level of fellowship. But sometimes we can, get, uh, we can break up over fairly stupid things. Right? And you know what they are. Some things are just stupid. But we break up over them, and, you know, it's, it is what it is. But we need to, Paul's saying, you don't get to do that anymore. You're being built up as citizens and fellow members, and you collectively are a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. Jesus Christ is going to be central. The Word is going to be foundational. All right? And you are being built up together. Notice, though, this is important. This is really important. Christianity is a collective. Christianity is not 
a one-man show. This is not, because you're not the hero, right? Who's the hero? Jesus Christ. And that's incredibly liberating for us. That's incredibly comforting because we're awful heroes, right? But he, he says, you are being built up together. The church as a group of people matters. Think about what we call the Lord's Prayer, all right? It's all plural. We don't say, my Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? Give me this day my daily bread. Forgive me my debts as I forgive my trust, you know, forgive those who have sinned against me. Lead me not into temptation. What do we say? We say, our Father, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Why? Because being part of a church matters. If you try and do Christianity on your own, you are a lone brick. Bricks don't do very, bricks by themselves are worthless, right? I mean, what is one brick can do? If you have one brick, what are you going to do with it? You're going to throw it through a window. Like, that's the only thing you can really do with one brick in and of itself. It doesn't really get much done. It just breaks things. You get a handful of bricks together, all of a sudden you can build something, right? And sometimes we have this idea, especially, uh, and then thankfully, you know, COVID kind of forced us to assess how badly we need each other. And, and I know this. You guys are here on Wednesday nights. I think you guys understand this too, okay? But don't ever, just as an exhortation, don't ever lose sight of the fact that the church matters. The church is not a helpful addition in your story of being your hero and your awesomeness. The church is a fundamental part of your growth and discipleship. And you can say, well, I don't really like the people at the church. Well, you know what? You're going to be mortared side by side to those bricks for all of eternity. You might as well get used to them down here because they are going to grind off your rough edges. They're going to help you grow. They might actually know something that you don't know yet, right? But the church collective is important, and, and the Lord sees it that way, okay? But overall, here's where we're at. Jesus Christ did it all. And God is the hero of the story. And we were dead. But God, being rich in his mercy, because of his great love, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace we have been saved through faith. Right? And that's not from ourselves. It's the gift of God. Ephesians is about the gift that God has given us. Lord, we are so thankful for your gifts. You've blessed us with every spiritual blessing. We can't even begin to think about what that is. But we have eternity to learn about it. So Lord, I pray that you would open up, just like Paul prayed, open up the eyes of our heart. Help us know the hope of your calling, the riches of the glory of your inheritance, and the greatness of your power. God, we want to stand firm in those things, grow in them, know them more. We want to know you more. So have your way in our hearts, God. Teach us about who you are. Help us to listen, to learn, to receive, and to grow. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, our Hero, and our Savior that we pray. Amen.